tonight's reading, tonight's reading comes, um, if you've got a, a Bible near you, on page 1170, and we're going to read Galatians chapter 3, verses 15 to 22. That's page 1170, Galatians chapter 3, starting at verse 15. The title is The Law and the Promise. Brothers and sisters, let me take an example from everyday life. Just as no one can set aside or add to the human covenant that has been duly established, so it is in this case. The promises were spoken to Abraham and to his seed. Scripture does not say, and to seeds, meaning many people, but, and to your seed, meaning one person, who is Christ. What I mean is this. The law, introduced 430 years later, does not set aside the covenant previously established by God and thus do away with the promise. For... If the inheritance depends on the law, then it no longer depends on the promise. But God, in his grace, gave it to Abraham through the promise. Why then was the law given, to, given at all? It was added because of transgressions until the seed to whom the promise referred had come. The law was given through angels and entrusted by a mediator. A mediator, however, implies more than one party, but God is one. Is the law, therefore, opposed to the promises of God? Absolutely not. For if the law had been given that could impart life, then righteousness would certainly have come by the law. But scripture has locked up everything under the control of sin so that what is promised being given through faith in Jesus Christ might be given to those who believe. This is God speaking. Good evening, one and all. It's great to be gathered together, isn't it, as we continue this, our series looking at Galatians as we come to the Bible, let's pray um, and ask God for his help. Jesus answered in Matthew, for it is written, man shall not live on bread alone, but on every word that comes from the mouth of God. Father, thank you that what we need this evening is open right in front of us right now. We confess our need for your words, and so we pray that you would make us humble and teachable, and we ask that you would encourage us by these wonderful truths, that we may be filled with joy as we follow the Lord Jesus. In his name we pray, amen. amen. Is Christianity about a promise? 
or performance, promise or performance. Now, I guess that most of us in this room would say that it is about promise. Christianity is not about our performance. Our standing before God is not about what we do, but rather it's all about the promise that salvation comes to those with faith in Jesus. We would say that it's about God's promise, not our performance. And yet we can often slip into the mindset of thinking that it is all about our performance. Why do we feel proud and potentially look down on others? Why do we have greater joy when we're doing well? Because we think it's all about our performance. Why do we feel despair and insecure? Why do we lack assurance when we're not doing so well? Because we think it's about our performance. Why do I sometimes lack genuine joy when I serve? Because I think I have to in order to perform. Why am I not honest about the battle with sin or about how I'm really doing? Well, because I think that I have to appear sorted in front of people. Because I think it's about performance. No, though we might not say it, I think we can often slip into the mindset of thinking that our standing before God is all about us, all about our performance, rather than his promise. This term we've been making our way through this letter to the Galatians, and if you've been with us, then you'll remember that the original recipients of this letter are a group of Christians from a Gentile background. These Gentiles, that is non-Jews, had put their trust in Jesus Christ alone for salvation And yet the essential truth of justification by faith alone was being denied by a group of Judaizers. A group had come along and were saying, well, it's great that you've put your faith in Jesus. That's a great start. But if you really want to be part of God's people, if you really want to be on the inner circle, well, now you must be circumcised. You must keep the law of Moses. You must go to the festivals and eat the right food. In other words, if you really want to be part of God's people, if you really want to be kosher, you must become Jewish. And the danger is that these Christians would be tempted to think that their position, their standing before God, was now dependent on their obedience to the law, on their performance. Now, I don't think we're in exactly the same position as the Galatians. I've not heard of anyone demanding that we must get circumcised, thank goodness. Not heard anyone saying that we must give up pork chops, thank goodness. And yet, as I've already said, there is the danger of that we can slip into the mindset of thinking that our standing before God is now dependent upon performance, on our obedience. The wonderful news is that Paul wants to remind us this evening, God wants to remind us of a great and liberating truth. Our standing before God is not about our performance, it's not about your performance or my performance, but about his promise. Now, I'm aware that this will be revision for most of us, but before we dive into Galatians, I think it's worth recapping some of what happens in the first book of the Bible, Genesis. In Genesis, we're told God made the world, all is good, but then comes the fall. Adam and Eve reject God. They are banished from the garden, and things continue to unravel. But then in chapter 12, God calls a man named Abraham, who later becomes Abraham, the man referred to in our passage, and God makes some promises to him. God promises Abraham a great nation. God promises Abraham a great land, and he promises him lots 
of blessing people, land and blessing, and it gets repeated a few chapters later on. But if you know the story, then you'll know that there's a big problem. Abraham and his wife are very old, and so it doesn't look as if the promise will come true. And so when Abraham asked the Lord, well, how can I know that this promise will come true? The Lord makes a covenant with Abraham. In the ancient world, the way to make a covenant was to get a load of animals, was to kill them, was to cut them in half so that you set the two halves opposite one another, and both parties in the covenant would walk through them. And you were saying that if you broke your side of the covenant, then you would be like these animals. That's what you would become. This is what happens in Genesis 15. Abraham finds some animals. He cuts them in half. He arranges the halves opposite each other. But the striking thing is that only one party goes through the animals. Abraham nods off. He falls asleep. Only God goes through. And the point is that God is the one who is committed to the promise The promise of people, land, and blessing will come true because it is an unconditional promise. God makes it, and he will keep it. And the whole story of the Bible from Genesis 12 and 15 onwards is all about how God's going to keep that promise, how God's going to keep the unconditional promise that he made to Abraham. Speed the story up a bit. We know that the people start to come true. They start to grow, but then they're slaves in Egypt. And so God rescues them. And after he does this, he gives his people the law. And so the question as we dive into Galatians this evening is this. How do the promise and the law relate to one another? Last week, we saw the contrast being made between faith and the law. And this week, it's the promise and the law. How do the promise and the law relate to one another? Well, we're going to see two things about the promise and law. And the first is that the law doesn't annul the promise. The law doesn't annul the promise. Let's look down as I reread from verse 15. Brothers and sisters, let me take an example from everyday life. Just as no one can set aside or add to a human covenant that has been duly established, so it is in this case. The promises were spoken to Abraham and to his seed. Scripture does not say, and to seeds, meaning many people, but and to your seed, meaning one person who is Christ. What I mean is this. The law introduced 430 years later does not set aside the covenant previously established by God and thus do away with the promise. For if the inheritance depends on the law, then it no longer depends on the promise. But God, in his grace, gave it to Abraham through a promise. This week I was listening to another preacher on this passage, and he told the story of what is described as the worst sales promotion in history. In 1992, the Hoover Company had the aim of boosting sales, and so they came up with this deal. They said, if any customer buys a product more than £100 you'll get two free return tickets to Europe. Um, To start with, the promotion went well, sales increased, but then they made the foolish decision. They expanded the offer to include trips to America. And so you could buy a product for £100 and get two free return trip tickets to New York or Orlando, worth at the time £600. And so people obviously thought, well, that's quite a good deal. We don't particularly need a Hoover. Um, but, But £100, and we'll get a trip to America as well, so we'll take that. 
And so, of course, it cost the company a vast amount of money. And so what they decided to do was they thought, well, bother, we've made a mistake. We'll go back on what we've said. We'll come up with as many excuses as we can as to why we don't need to give out these tickets. And so, of course, the customers weren't happy. They were upset. The terms and conditions had been changed. The covenant had been set aside. And you can't do that. That is the point Paul makes in verse 15. Just as no one can set aside or add to a human covenant that has been duly established, you can't do it. And so it is with this case. The same is true with the promise that God made to Abraham. God made a promise to Abraham. It was ratified with the covenant. It has been signed. And so therefore, whatever happens after that moment, this covenant cannot be set aside. It cannot be added to. God cannot change the terms and conditions of the promise. Now, as we see in verse 16, this promise that was made to Abraham is actually also a promise to Jesus. He is the offspring. He is the seed. He is the true heir of God's promise. He is the one who receives the people, the lands, and the blessing. And yet the amazing news of Christianity is that all of the blessings of that promise to Abraham and that promise to Jesus can belong to us too. As we put our faith in Jesus, we are united to Christ, and so we become inheritors. We'll think more about this next week. But the point for now The point for now is that the law given to Moses doesn't annul the promise that was made to Abraham. Verse 17, again, what I mean is this. The law introduced 430 years later does not set aside the covenant previously established by God and thus do away with the promise. Of course, we can discuss all day whether it was the chicken or the egg that came first, but when it comes to promise and law, no debates. Genesis 12, Genesis 15, they come before Exodus 20. Abraham comes before Moses. The promise comes first. The law comes later. And the law doesn't overturn what God has said he will do. The law doesn't annul the unconditional promise that God made to Abraham and then to Christ. 4 verse 18, if the inheritance depends on the law, then it no longer depends on the promise. If I make a promise that is based on conditions, then whether or not I keep the promise is not really dependent on the promise. Whether I keep the promise or not is all dependent on whether the conditions are met. But God, in his grace, gave the inheritance to Abraham through a promise. And so you see, the law was never supposed to be the way that God's people receive the inheritance. The law was never meant to be the means by which God's people inherit the blessings. It's always been about the promise. The law doesn't annul the promise. But what's the question that we're all currently thinking? It's the question of verse 19, isn't it? Why then was the law given at all. I mean, some of us might be thinking of another question, but I think that's the question we should be thinking of, right? If the law doesn't add anything to the promise, if the inheritance isn't dependent upon the law, then what's the point of the law? Why was it given at all? Well, in the rest of our verses, we see that the law shows our need for the promise. 
The law doesn't annul the promise. The law shows our need for the promise. Verse 19, why then was the law given at all? It was added because of transgressions until the seed to whom the promise refers had come. Now, before the law was given, there was sin in the world. Each and every person before the law was given was born living in rebellion against God, and so therefore deserving of his just judgment. But when the law was added, that sin that was already there, well, it became transgression. That is, it became a known violation of God's law. Now, Paul is not saying in these verses that the law caused people to sin, but that in a sense, the law turned existing sin into transgression. He's saying that the law shows me what was already there and makes it very clear. He's saying that the law reveals my sin. We can therefore think of the law as functioning like a mirror. I looked in the mirror on Tuesday morning and saw that my hair was a mess. Now, my hair was a mess before I looked in the mirror. And yet, the mirror revealed it to me. The mirror made it very clear. If you don't like the mirror, think of the x-ray. The problem is there before the x-ray is taken. The x-ray simply reveals the problem. The x-ray makes it very clear. But here's the thing, right? Just because the law does that, just because the law reveals my sin, just because the law makes it very, very clear, well, it doesn't mean that the law is the solution to my sin. Tuesday morning, the mirror revealed that my hair was a mess. But just imagine how ridiculous it would have been if I then just walked up to the mirror, took it off the wall, and tried to brush my hair with it. Ridiculous. I needed something else. And I chose the drastic option of a trip to the barbers. Or again, the more serious option. Imagine the doctor shows you the x-ray, shows you the broken leg or whatever it is. And you say, no, thank you. I don't want the cast. I'm going to take the little picture off the screen and wrap it around my leg. No, it's a ridiculous idea. You need something else. And the same point is true with the law. The law reveals our sin, yes. But we're not meant to see our sin and think, well, I'm now going to use the law to sort me out, to help me. The law is not the solution. It was never meant to be. It's limited. Did you notice that in our verses? We'll come back to this more next week. But even here, we can see that in some sense, the law was temporary. Do you notice the way that it's described? The law was added. The law was added because of transgressions until... In some sense, temporary, but also limited because of who was involved. Let's pick it up at the second half of verse 19. The law was given through angels and entrusted to a mediator. A mediator, however, implies more than one party, but God is one. So the law came from God through angels to a mediator Moses. And the existence of that mediator implies that there are two parties involved. There is God, the one who creates the law, and there are Israel, God's people. And so, of course, if the law is going to save people, well, both sides of the parties need to keep their side of the bargain. 
But with the promise, there's only one side. Only the one who is making the promise, that is only God, needs to keep his side of the bargain. And so then, is the law opposed to the promises of God? Are the law and promises in opposition to one another? Are the, are the law and promises two parallel train tracks that lead to the same destination? Absolutely not. For if a law had been given that could impart life, then righteousness would certainly have come by the law. If there is a law that could give us life, then of course the law and promise would be in competition. But there isn't. The law cannot give life. Instead, what does the law do? Well, verse 22, but Scripture, or the law, has locked everything under the control of sin. The law plays a temporary role in showing me that I am under the control of sin. Why? Well, so that what was promised, being given through faith in Jesus Christ, might be given to those who believe. Here's the point. The purpose of the law is to show me my sin, to show me that I'm in trouble, so that I might receive the promise by putting my faith in Jesus. The Bible then is not two different plans. It's not that God thought plan A, let's save people by the law, bother it's not working, let's send Jesus. No, God has only ever had one plan. He doesn't change his mind. He gave the law to reveal sin, to prepare us for and indeed drive us to Jesus. The law doesn't annul the promise. The law shows our need for the promise. Now, of course, there's lots more that could be said about the law. This isn't the only time Paul speaks about it. And whilst we don't have time to say everything now, I think it's worth making a few clarifications. Paul is not saying that the law is bad. Just because the law shows me my sin and therefore my need for the promise does not mean that the law itself is a bad thing. In fact, in other places, Paul describes the law as holy and good. Paul is not saying here that lawlessness is a good thing. He's, he's not saying, well, Christian believers, you can just live how you want to now. Paul is not saying that the law is irrelevant for people who live after Jesus. The application of this passage is not go home and rip out the Old Testament and never read it again. It's part of Scripture. It is profitable. Of course, we've got to be careful how we read it, how we apply it. But it's not the case that the law is irrelevant. Paul is not arguing against the law as a whole. Rather, the context of the letter shows us why he's talking like this. He wants us to know that the law is not the way that people are made right with God. And it is not the way that people stay right with God. It is all about the promise. Perhaps you'll hear this evening as someone who's looking into Christian things. I'm so great to have you with us. Please know this. The way to eternal life is not about your effort. The teaching of the Bible is not, here's the law, now go and pull your socks up and try a bit harder to become a better person. Instead, it's more accurate to say, here is the law. You don't do it and you can't do it. So let's go to Jesus Christ together and put our faith in him. Only he can make us right with God. And yet, that's not simply the message that 
non-Christians need, is it? It's also the message that we need to be reminded of too. Remember, the original audience of this letter are Christian believers. They're a group of people who've put their faith in Jesus, and so therefore they have received the promise. But now they are being influenced, by being influenced by a group who are saying, well, you must keep the law of Moses if you want to stay right. And even though we're not in exactly the same position, we're not tempted, I don't think, to think, well, we must obey the law of Moses, we can so easily think it's all about our performance. It's not the case. God wants us to know the liberating truth. It is not about law, it's not about performance, but rather all about his promise. And if we grasp this, if we grasp that it's about his promise and not our performance, well, it's going to make a massive difference to us as Christians and to us as a church. What will happen? Well, as we grasp that it's about promise and not performance, we won't feel proud or look down on others when we're seemingly doing well because our confidence isn't in us. It's in the promise. As we really grasp this, we won't feel despair and insecure. We won't lack assurance when things aren't going so well because our confidence isn't in us, but in the promise. As we really get this, then it will enable us to serve with joy, won't it? Because we know that we don't serve out of duty in order to perform. We don't serve to tick boxes or to say we've done our duty. It's not about performance. As we grasp this, then it will help us to see that it really doesn't matter if there are hiccups during the service, if things don't go as perfectly as we might like them to. Because it's not about performance. It's about promise. I think as we grasp this, then it will really help us with mission. Because we want to be real with people who come to this church, whether they're Christians or not. We want to be clear with them that this is not a gathering for people who've got everything sorted. We want to be clear that it's a gathering for people who want to look at the promise and try and follow Jesus. As we grasp this, then it will enable us to be more honest with the church family about how we're really doing, how the battle with sin is really going. Because I can be honest. Because it's not about my performance. It's about the promise. This week, in, um, on a Wednesday morning, we um, meet as a, as a staff team to look through the, the sermon that's coming up on the following Sunday. Um, and Andrew and Dan, we spoke, um, spoke about how that we might answer the question, how are you doing as we come to church? A Christian asks you, how are you doing at the moment? And we, and we often put that face on, don't we? Yeah, we're doing fine. And they'd both heard of someone who answers that question better than I deserve. Better than I deserve. Because that person is trusting in the promise. Pointing people to the promise in their answer rather than their own performance. And as we grasp this, then of course it will help us to have more joy in the Christian life. Because Christianity, because you're standing, think about this, you're standing before the God of the universe... It is not about you, it is not about me, it is not about our performance. It is about his wonderful, glorious, free promise. Let's pray together.
Scripture has locked up everything under the control of sin so that what was promised, being given through faith in Jesus Christ, might be given to those who believe. Father, thank you for just how liberating these verses are, that we don't need to think that it's all about us and our performance. Thank you that that is not the case. But instead, thank you that it is about a wonderful promise that you made to Abraham and to Jesus. And therefore, the promise that we can have in him. And so we pray that you would help us to relate to you on the basis of this promise, but also to relate to one another on the basis of this promise. Help us not to feel proud. Help us not to lack assurance. Help us to be open and honest with one another knowing that our standing before you is not about our performance, but about your wonderful promise. Amen. The musicians are going